Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Howdy, folks. Today's topic is about customer education. This one is in the context of biopharma and healthcare, but the lessons apply regardless of your industry. And because it's planning season, now is a good time to think about how you will educate new customers or create a stronger connection with your existing audience next year. Video and audio storytelling are the best tools for doing that. Let's stop interrupting what people are interested in and be the thing they're interested in. If you want to chat about that, schedule a 15-minute call with me using my Calendly link in the show notes. Now... Let's jump into it. All right. Frank Dolan is back for his third visit. And as the CEO of Arsenal Advisors, he's busy connecting people and ideas that are transforming the life science industry. Frank, I want to welcome you specifically to episode 150 of LSMR. It is is a privilege and a luxury to be on 150 with Chris (laughs) Conner. So last year we talked about how a pre-commercial biotech company gets ready to launch its first product. And we talked about storytelling, community building, and so on. But it was a pretty broad conversation. And today I want to dig into that a little deeper into one aspect, which is around disease state awareness and education. So to start off as a review, refresh listeners on the challenges and the opportunities of shaping the market for a pre-commercial launch. When you've got a really innovative product to offer the market, there's something really powerful about making sure that all of the different stakeholders that could be involved in that product are, are really aware of perhaps where it fits inside the, the therapeutic regiment, if you will. Even in some competitive spaces, there's an opportunity to talk about kind of differentiation or to broaden the piece of pie. So I I would look at it from a couple different angles. One is if you've got a product in a congested market and you want to do disease state awareness, disease state education, if you will, whatever you want to call it, you could grow the size of the pie. So if you're only going to have one small piece, you want a bigger piece of pie or not. So there's an opportunity sometimes to broaden the market. Now, all of this has got to be done ethically for sure, but let's just assume that everyone behaves well. On the other side of it, and I think where we've seen, no matter how involved you are in the life sciences industry, there's so much talk about rare diseases. You know, we're identifying more rare diseases and we are coming up with tools to treat those rare diseases. These campaigns can be worthwhile because often, in the rare disease space in particular, patients can be walking around this earth for about eight years until their thing, their malady, actually has a diagnosis. And that's tough because that's an eight-year journey of tests and specialists or ignoring symptoms or living with things that aren't great, but your illness doesn't have a name. And that's not important just to be to be accurate. Like, your illness has a proper diagnosis. But the other consequences of having a proper diagnosis that changes your reimbursement with your payer, maybe the level of service and testing your provider can do, but also the component that's not often talked about is the social one, which is, can you interact with other people or get resources 
for people that have what you have and live with what you live with. There's something very powerful about opening up that community of people who want to fight together against something that may be ailing them. Yeah, we're going to get into that a little bit about how those patients interact and how the payers think about this sort of thing. Maybe I'm jumping a little bit ahead here, but COVID's hanging around, as we all know, for at mm -hmm. least a little while longer. How does that affect the picture in terms of disease state education and how people can deliver it is really what we're talking about. Yeah, it's a great question. So... Life science organizations, in my opinion, need to be prepared for an enduring atmosphere where connections are going to have to be remote in some regard. For, for some reasons that may be beneficial, COVID has made us uh, pivot on both sides of the transaction to be open to having these virtual interactions with each other. And, and when I say that, a lot of physicians, for example, healthcare professionals, didn't necessarily want to interact on Zoom calls with, let's say, members of the life sciences industry. That wasn't part and parcel for what they do. And the biopharma and medtech industries said, we can send people to that office and, and meet physically. Here's a strategic advantage. I've got more reps than you do because it's all about the face-to-face -face interaction. So your point about COVID, we're all learning and going to need to continue to be flexible with this virtual connection. The impact that I think that exists here is with whatever value offering we have, whether we're talking about a product, if we've got one approved, or if it's pre-approval and it's doing disease state education, we're not talking about the product. Are we doing things that are perceived as valuable? So not only do people want to participate at the moment, but people want to participate with you in the future. That's the, the area that I think people need to pay attention to is, are you not just doing something that has impact uh, today, but are you doing something that has enduring value where folks want to be exposed to that virtual interaction in the future? For healthcare professionals, if they know the company, they know the representative, the medical affairs professional, they know the product, you may be able to open the door. But when it comes to the other constituencies that we're talking about today, which will include patients and payers, if you or your company or your product are unknowns, why would anyone want to open the email, turn on the webcam, <laughs> or interact with you when they decide it's comfortable to be face-to-face -face with someone with or without masks? So that's a whole other ball of wax that we can talk about. Okay, great. So that's perfect segue because we're going to split this up. We're going to start with those providers, people who probably know a little bit about you, or you might be able to deliver something that's of fairly immediate value to them. And by that, I don't mean a product, but education around something they would be interested in. Before COVID, what did disease state education look like for a healthcare provider? So... A lot of brands, I should say companies, because if pre-approval, we don't have a brand yet. So we'll just talk about a company who's going to talk about uh, a therapeutic area, a disease state, if you will, and they're going to talk to a provider. I think there, there are many ways that these are done, but three that are really notable would be significant medical conference presence. When people were going on site and manufacturers, drug sponsors, if you will, would put on, let's say, dinner programs or, or sessions and discussions, breakouts, 
They may have a booth in the exhibit hall and they would be talking about the big problem in the disease state. Before FDA approval in the United States, you can't talk necessarily about the product when it comes to claims, efficacy numbers, uh, the patient indication, if you will, those are all out of bounds. We can talk about the consequences of that here in a moment, but conferences would be big as you're trying to get thought leaders in the medical community who would speak on that disease state and they would talk about the challenges and perhaps what current solutions and options are and the upside and down with that. So building awareness around the disease state, some energy, but also starting to help the customer quantify the positives and negatives that they face with the current treatment options, but without going down the path of the, the drug itself. That might happen at the local level as well. So you might deploy a medical affairs team to talk to providers that you thought were perhaps more of the ideal customer. They've got the right types of patients using different type of analyses. And you, again, you might go down the path of having a lunch and learn type program or a, a dinner program, they call it speaker programs, or even some virtual programs and webinars. And the third way would be shaping kind of publications and, uh, and resources that might be sent. It didn't necessarily need a face-to-face component, so I think that certainly endures. But of all of the different options, those are the three big ones that jump. So let's go back to the first one. Maybe we're at a conference, there's a dinner session or a breakout, and we'll talk about still sticking with providers. Describe the layer cake that you described for me previously about the different interest levels of the people that would attend. And the purpose of this is to help people understand what are these people interested in? Because each of them might have a different angle about why they would be interested in disease state education. There are folks that in the healthcare professional area, we would probably retreat to saying there are segments of people who have interests that might be exposed to this education. And so the one segment where you have providers or professionals that are really interested in what the thought leaders in their discipline or specialty are up to, because that individual is speaking, they could, that influencer, if you will, on the physician side or provider side, they could be talking about anything and then these folks are going to show up because they're icons of their craft and people will show up. And so... That segment of healthcare professional that shows up for this disease education initiative is probably largely anchored on the big name, the big thought leader that's speaking about the disease state. So that's kind of like segment one. Segment two might be the folks that are, they're cutting edge. They're always looking for the next big thing. And they're hoping that session, with or without the association to the big name, is talking about what's next with that corner of the disease state that they have an interest in. So that's always helpful. Those people, you have a real opportunity to provide an awful lot of value because they're there for the topic, not just to be associated with the big name, as we talked about in segment one. And then, then there, you have that third segment of folks that are just, they're, they're genuinely curious. They may or may not see challenges They may or not be super motivated by the area of the disease state, but if you can provoke them, there may be an opportunity to say you can start to become a part of their thought when it comes to the disease process and the decisions that they make by having a really compelling disease state education story. 
about the upside, the downside, the challenges, what's missing. That's You can have real impact with those folks that may just be passive participants, but they're not necessarily truly motivated by the speaker and the whole uh, social hierarchy that exists or to the disease state. Those other two segments are really interesting when it comes to how do you craft your message to get their attention and ultimately interest in action down. So the first group are following an influencer and I'm presuming he has some association with your company or you're lucky enough just to get them to speak because they want to share what they know too, right? Regardless of their relationship to your company. Is that fair? It is. And the best quote unquote influencers in this therapeutic thought leader area are often very sought after. They may be associated with some really great academic institutions. They've been a part of some landmark research or what have you. And if you decide to narrow things down to a specific disease state category, take, for example, Parkinson's disease, you're going to find a lot of the companies playing in the Parkinson's space will have a, an independent physician speaker faculty that has a lot of the same names on it which is interesting. They know who gets attention and they get so much attention that segment one that we described will certainly show up and listen when they talk. And then the second layer, I think in the manufacturing world where I come from, those would be called the early adopters. People who are just like, they want to know what's next. Like they're waiting for, even if it's just what's new information, they want to be on top of it all the time. Yes. In, independent of who's speaking. And the third people, the third group would be the early majority, late majority, lifelong learners. I think you described it to me. Yeah. Yeah. So those things took place face to face. How do you see that happening not face to face in the world we currently live in where all these interactions are going to be remote? <clears throat> You don't get a stake with your Zoom link. <laughs> how, do, yeah. how do we make that happen? <clears throat> I, I think the remote world represents trade-offs. And what we gain with reach, we, we lose out because of competitive interests. So if I am in charge of a disease state education or awareness program, the good news is that my audience today is more able, willing, open to the remote engagement of the webinar, the webcast, the on-demand video content presentation, downloads, whatever it may be, that that remote engagement, they have been conditioned to accept more than ever. But that means everyone else has that option as well. And how do I get Dr. Connor to open the email, click through the link, sign up for the webinar, interact in the chat, pay attention to screen one, not screen two from their <laughs> lovely office. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really hard. I, but like I said, I mean, it's trade-offs, but you really do have the ability to have scale. We're consuming so much stuff on demand in every facet of our life that not everything needs to be live, but again, how do we create that sort of trust where people want to engage with that content? That's, that's certainly a trick and we need to be careful because that the remedy often is just 
will send out more invitations. You're ignoring the first five, maybe I'll send out another five. Before you know it, you're creating a negative brand experience. So this goes beyond disease state education, but I think for a lot of life science brands, they have to realize what's the entirety of the experience that uh, they're giving their, their healthcare professionals, if that's who we're focusing on right now, in the entirety of their communications and that experience, even disease state. And uh, will people want more of that in the future? I think you gotta win the long game, but it's a delicate one day to day. Yeah, and what I believe will be an upcoming episode hasn't been scheduled yet, but I've had a chat with someone about that very thing. About it's about artificial intelligence and knowing when to send an email and what email to send and how many times to try and so on. So I think that's going to be very interesting. But I want to go back because you hinted at this about different messaging to those three layers of the cake, the people following the influencers, the early adopters, and the lifelong learners. Mm -hmm. do, you want, do you have an example of how you would handle each of those a little differently in terms of messaging or getting people to an event? So the, the folks that are influencer sensitive, the, the good news is that as long as you've got the right influencers or thought leaders, people will go ahead and, and show up. Many of these influencers are going to speak candidly and speak with nuance. And through that, does it look like they are favorable to the broader disease state story? That's, that's you can't, you can attempt to influence it if you're really that bold but that's hard to do. That's really up to the influencer and hopefully you've got a good story. So from a messaging standpoint or, or a strategy standpoint, it's just like for that segment, use the big names, use them often, let them tell the story. And hopefully if nothing else by association, your role in that story as a manufacturer of something that might be pre-approval, for example, that's a positive association. So it's the association thing that you're trying to be a part of. With the early adopter, getting them to be excited and following what's coming, because we, uh, organizations will have big plans when it comes to, to publications, resources, et cetera, but to, to get those folks interested in the story and then ultimately uh, upon their own volition, they become interested in the product, great things can happen. And we've seen that with some innovative medicines and devices that have come out in the last five years where there is such demand surge upon approval because you have all of these quote-unquote raving fans ready to use the drug they've screened the patients they know that this is going to be a fit they're following the science they haven't been solicited about the drug specifically prior to approval but they know what's coming they're following and they're identifying patients putting them in the queue and then implementing we've seen some incredible like first quarter sales of a launch because of the demand surge. But then you've got to get everybody else to get on board. And so that those first few weeks of sales may not necessarily dictate what sales six months out, 12 months out might look like. All, many of the patients might have been used up already by your early adopters. So that brings you to that third segment, is it like the lifelong learners is, can you get them to be start to think more in early adopter in thinking about new ways. And, and that's when it comes to a messaging standpoint is I think about kind of the frame of 
while we can't talk about our solution specifically, what you can do in the storytelling is create a frame of what would a good solution look like? And if you can tell the story of what a good solution would look like when it comes time for you to talk about your solution, people will try to view your solution through that frame and you win. Got it. Yeah, I think, I mean, honestly, it seems to me, obviously you should know what how they're going to speak and they should appear to be as unbiased toward you as possible, really. If they're that big of an influencer, the fact that you got them there and then they know what they're doing. And then it's your job, again, to set the frame for everybody on any layer of the cake. I love that analogy. I can't let it go. So that when the thing comes out, they go, yeah, that does exactly what I was hoping whatever was going to show up next would do. Exactly. How is it, how is disease state education different for patients? You talked a little bit of people with rare diseases might live with it for many years, get pushed from specialist to specialist. I don't know what I have. Resources to help them figure out, you know, what they have and when they do figure it out, how to live with it, what's coming, other groups. Yeah. Is there more to it than that? With the patient education component of a disease awareness campaign, this can be really powerful because depending on the therapeutic area, depending on the disease, of course, there are times where you need patients to raise their hand for diagnosis, for treatment, to uh, you need them to take action and stay on their, their medications or what have you. So we've seen over time organizations that are in very competitive disease state areas, therapeutic areas that may be mass market. So for example, cholesterol. Another example would be diabetes. If you've got so many players in the diabetes market as just one example, like why would one company say, I don't know if my peers will have anything to do with this. So I'm not asking them for action. I'm not asking them for money but I'm gonna put millions of dollars into a national disease education campaign around diabetes because just generally, if people understand their disease state, if they understand their diabetes, if they understand that it's most of the damage in diabetes is happening asymptomatically, then ultimately everybody wins because I've got that strong of a commitment to patients. Like it's for the greater good. That's, I think that's very powerful. In other areas, for example, going back to rare disease because it's such a hot topic, organizations who decide to do a disease education or awareness program early on with these patient advocacy organizations that may exist around a rare disease is very powerful for many reasons. First of all, the company is getting involved in that community. So the manufacturer, the company developing the technology or the drug, for example, is trying to serve the community through the lab, through experimentation, through development of a product. That's great. But what about being a part of that community at a more grassroots level? Whether it's a national organization or just a mom and pops grassroots thing going on in greater Cincinnati for some rare diseases, just trying to get people who deal with something similar to have access to support we relate to one another, maybe we have resources, what have you, but being a part of that community, I think is a responsibility for a life science you know, organization. When I see companies 
that are getting ready to either apply or getting a drug approved, especially in the biopharma space specifically, overwhelmingly, they're almost all publicly traded. And the energy, the verve, the enthusiasm that their C-suite has with the investor community around the disease state they're about to get in is, is lovely. I think it's very important that the energy and commitment towards the patient-facing community that they're about to serve has the same level of energy and verve and enthusiasm early on. They're gonna par you're gonna participate in that community of patients. And the benefits that an organization gets are immense. First of all, you get to understand what's the journey of people who become patients who get involved in that patient organization. That journey is important to understand how these people get there. The struggles that they may have, these things can shape your future educational programs, your resources that you may provide providers, the patients themselves and beyond the community. And then finally, you get a real opportunity to get into the, to the actual patient narrative around people that may be associated with, with the, those patients specifically. And in rare disease, this is sometimes easier to talk about than other areas, but no patient really is alone. There's always people around them. And if there are people around them that know what they're suffering from, what they're dealing with, there could be something very powerful about your organization saying, not only do I have a treatment at some point in the future for this patient with this disease, but we've identified with the community and here are other resources that we've thought about that we can provide because it's more than just it's more than just one thing for a patient these people have lives they have friends they have education they have weddings they have birthdays they have all sorts of stuff that's happening and their disease is maybe just a sliver of their life but an important one i think savvy manufacturers will realize the more we understand the entirety of that patient experience and story probably the, 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 the better shepherd we can be of a value equation that we need to provide these folks and get, the, get them the help they need. So it sounds like there's always a little bit of market research there too when you build that community. Because I'm guessing the first therapy for a rare disease is probably good, but it's not the best one. And there's, whether it's challenges about how often you have to take it or side effects or who knows what, right? Is there's probably another step, but understanding what those people are dealing with all the time is helpful. And then is it too much to say that when you understand that community and as you say, their daily lives, weddings, whatever it is, there are non-therapeutic resources that might be helpful for them that don't require any approval to say, we understand that this community has trouble with whatever, getting around, getting access to events or just their morning routine, education or physical resources that make things easier for them that way? Is that too far of a reach? Identifying the things that these individuals, these groups, these organizations and beyond need at every level, if you understand the things that they need in the entirety of their lives, their course of treatment, etc., is going to be powerful. Now, clearly with rules, regulations, budgets and beyond, not all things are possible, but that awareness is, is really huge. And I believe that awareness and understanding your customer, we teach in every basic marketing course why would we avoid that when it comes to the high stakes of medical care? So I think it's a great practice whether or not we can act on the solution. The awareness is going to start ideation and creativity 
that could turn into value in the column of possible things that we can do to help support patients. Right. Or create an opportunity for someone else to create a solution and be part of it. Absolutely. I'm always going, I feel like I'm going to college for the third time when I'm talking to you. <laughs> Tell me about payers. What is What would be a payer's interest in disease state education other than I'm guessing they want to get their money's worth. So they want to know what's happening, what might be more efficacious or just generally size of the market, what it's going to cost them in the future. I, You tell yeah. me. So the payer journey with the disease state education, the, the pre-approval activities really has been fascinating. So the whole idea about engaging a stakeholder prior to a product's approval has been challenging for a lot of organizations. And, and I say that if we just want to focus on the biopharmaceutical industry just for a second, because it's easy, there's tons of data, and it's always in the press, it seems. But as sophisticated as many of these organizations are, let's think about most biopharmaceutical companies, generally speaking, are well-funded, generally speaking, are staffed with a fair number of people. They're these people are talented, they're well-educated, and many of these organizations, regardless of how much funding that they have or how many people they have on staff, they really are surrounded by lots and lots of legal firms, consulting firms, you name it, to help them do the right thing the, the right way. With the smaller companies, maybe there's some level of forgiveness and tolerance, but believe it or not, even with the top 50 companies, biopharma companies globally, you still see them get into trouble with some of these communications before a product is out on the market. So I just wanted to lay the stakes out there yeah. because in the last 10 years, we're not talking about back in the stone age. In the last 10 years, there have been over 55 rulings against mostly drug companies that we've all heard of that would be considered top five, top 10, top 20 for sure. But 55 companies, uh, 55 instances of these companies getting in trouble with this sort of promotion, which equals almost $14 billion in fines. So when it comes to some of these pre-approval communications, to no matter what stakeholder, people are concerned and scared. And it's certainly the consequences of doing it wrong. And I believe that these companies thought they were probably doing it right. The consequences are, are really high. Okay. So with payers where the journey has been interesting there is really it wasn't until about 2014 when the hepatitis c drugs came out that was that kind of real turning point where wait a second you could give a drug a course of therapy once and never have to treat this again it was a real sea change in when it comes to care with that seat change came a cost because the pricing for those drugs as a one-time treatment really shocked <laughs> a lot of payers for sure. And it was at that time that actually the payers really started to clamor to Washington, if you will, and say, it would benefit us to know what's coming so we can be aware. And I don't know that they fall into the segments like the providers did per se, as far as influencer, early adopter, or lifelong learner. But they all fall into the to the segment of people who have to budget and forecast. That is for sure. So it's there's been some changes, and really in in recent years, the FDA has provided some updates on what these pre-approval communications could look. You still can't go around claims, but you can talk about 
the disease area, there can be some economic modeling, if you will. So the, some of the common terms when you're talking to payers when it comes to this stuff is helping them with a budget impact model, a BIM model. So the budget impact model is a big deal. Like what will this have an effect on like the per member per month cost or what have you? So these conversations can happen 12, 18 months ahead of time with payers so they can begin to be prepared when it comes to budgeting and what have you. And so the field of play has changed with the 21st century uh, CARES Act. And in 2018, the FDA had some updated guidance on these things. So payers do want to know, what do I have to expect? How big is this patient constituency? And how should I begin to think about pricing and impact when it comes to these things? A lot of manufacturers are very hesitant to talk too specific about pricing for all the right reasons. But, but those with payers, the interest is because if you've got a remarkable drug that is going to be insanely expensive, but only impact a few people, then maybe it's a good thing for them to think about. We'll probably need to reimburse this. That's a good thing versus if we've got something that's going to affect 15% of their membership and it's a modest cost, where will they have to trade off with the line items to, to manage their budget accordingly? Yeah, that was worth my third time around at college. <laughs> I hadn't really thought about it, but every new drug that comes out, many of them, new ones, will be potentially an added expense for a payer. Some of them might replace something else. So it's just, we're just moving money from one bucket to another. But in some cases, we're handing out more money, and they do have a limited budget without continually raising their premiums so they have to figure, set some criteria for which of these will we pay for yep that's i hadn't thought about it quite that way but that was enlightening for me yeah but to go back to the hep c example while one needs to be very careful with the claims and the calculus one could imagine if I have one course of treatment with this very expensive drug, but patients have reduced morbidity, mortality, disease progression, other treatments, hospitalizations, there's just a lot of Jenga math that goes with that. Right. How do we think through that? And so it's a delicate argument. I don't know that all drug manufacturers specifically do a great job uh, telling that story because certainly public trust, the nightly news has a point of view on on the value math that pharma in particular brings forward sometimes. But it's true. This is a multifactorial world. Healthcare is a you know multifactorial endeavor. But when it comes to preparing for the future, new products, what are what's the impact they're going to have specifically? And what are elements of impact that might not be so direct that are worth consideration for a payer? So can I ask, if you're doing a clinical trial, which has some limited duration, can you make a reasonable estimate? I'm just thinking about the hep C example. Yes, it may work, whatever this new drug is, very well, reduce morbidity and mortality. But do you have a long enough time frame to be able to actually say, to a payer, your costs are going to go down by X because, or even throw out the word costs, just say, we know that these people will live longer, healthier, and other treatments will be less necessary by X. 
Is it possible at the end of a trial when you're approved to know a reasonable amount to give them some good information? Or are we really waiting a few years and then they could say, oh, you see what's happening here? It's really good. We can do X, Y, Z. So the health economic studies, I think, are typically done in parallel and not necessarily designed into what I would consider to be a pivotal trial that will be part of the registration. Right. But you do see some manufacturers, you certainly see academic centers and other interests that sponsor research start to, to, to toy with the eco overall economics associated with care, with outcome, with treatment. And I think that's really exciting. You've got an organization called ICER that is doing a lot of sophisticated modeling uh, and, and creating basically an articulation of what they think value and pricing and impact on quality of life, quality of care looks like. And we've seen that very recently. There was a Alzheimer's drug that was approved that had some controversy around that and then some pricing controversy. And, and this ICER organization said, we actually think if the drug works, it's actually worth this amount, but the drug sponsor says it's actually worth that amount. So this price for value thing is really convoluted, but that's where that research would be very valuable. I think that many people would say they wish it was done with more frequency. And until we, it's certainly the U.S. alone is becoming more value centric, the value that's paying for medications, treatment, et cetera that you'll probably see these organizations like ICER grow in power or at least grow in voice. And if you have other interests that are willing to put the money in, because you think about why are you interested in investing in that research? It, 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 if it doesn't come from the manufacturers, which it hasn't been at an incredibly robust degree, there'll be other entities that are concerned about value and the overall health economic equation probably get more involved. And I think that will create a really interesting dialogue with the innovators in med tech and biopharma. Nice. That I've told you before, like how much I appreciate your educating me on all this stuff. Some of the whole healthcare world, which is not my natural world is just mind boggling to me to where my eyes roll back in my head. <laughs> that's really interesting. Like the, the whole economics of things and how people figure those things out because drugs aren't free. Research isn't free. You know, we all want to be healthy. We got to, we got to weigh things out. So I really appreciate you taking the time to educate me and hopefully lots and lots of listeners. So Frank My Dolan, pleasure. thank you so much. My pleasure. Can't wait to do this again. All right. I'll put it on the calendar. Fascinating once again. While my primary focus is life science, as you know, I think we can always learn from others. And when you think marketing instrumentation and reagents is hard, biopharma brands have to get pretty creative to get around all the obstacles they face in terms of regulations and not knowing exactly who the end user of their product is and so on. So, I've got more episodes coming in this area, and whichever world you live in, I promise you will learn something, so stay tuned. 
While you're waiting for the next episode, or even waiting for your team to arrive on a Zoom meeting, tell your colleagues about the podcast, won't you? I'm pretty sure it will lead to some good discussions down the road. That's it for now. Back in two weeks. Bye-bye.